Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Let's pray together before we go to God's Word. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your Word. We thank you for speaking to us, revealing your will to us. Lord, we thank you for giving us your Spirit to make the Word effective in our lives, to lead us, to grow us, to guide us, to convict us. Lord, we ask and pray for that this morning that you would be at work in these moments. We ask for this and pray for this because we know no good will come apart from your spirit. So work now and encourage us in our faith and help us to encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, in the year 2000, it seems so weird to say that, in 2000, uh, John Piper preached a sermon at a passion conference that uh, impacted a whole generation of believers. That sermon has become known as the the seashells sermon. In it, he told a story of these two women. One was a nurse, one a doctor, and they worked all their lives, and then they chose to spend their retirement in Cameroon, living to make Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places of the world. They were in their 80s as they were doing this, driving from village to village in order to magnify Christ. One day as they were driving, the brakes went out on their car and they went over a cliff and that was it. Then he asked the question, He asked the crowd of about 40,000 young people who were gathered at this conference, he said, was that a tragedy? And the answer he gave was a resounding no. I want to read a portion of his message from that day. He said, it is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. And he pulled out a page from the Reader's Digest and he read it to them. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, he told the crowd. He said there are People in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it, and I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did with your life, and you say, here it is, Lord, my shell collection And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. Now, he preached that sermon two years before I was a Christian. And he wrote a book based off that sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. And that book totally changed my life. It's at the top of the list of books I recommend for people if they ask me for a good book to read on the Christian life. See, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to be careful that we do not waste our lives. Let me me suggest that if your main goal in life is just 
to be happy and successful and comfortable and then to have a nice retirement, you're wasting your life. The only life that is not wasted is the one that is totally devoted to serving Jesus Christ. One that stores up treasure in heaven and not on earth. You have one life. Don't waste it. I think about what is going to keep the next generation of young Christians from taking Christ to the world and taking the world for Christ. I think sometimes it's not going to be some giant moral failure. It's going to be a hundred million tiny little distractions that keep us from serving Jesus Christ with all that we are. Until our lives are consumed by the trivial. I want to press upon your hearts at the outset this morning that the one thing worthy of giving your life to is serving Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that is the mission that he has given us to go and make disciples. It's the most significant purpose. It's the greatest cause that you can give your life to. You see, God is at work in the world. God is in the process of drawing people to his son, Jesus, saving them by grace through faith in him. He is making spiritually dead people alive. He is turning wicked people into worshipers. He is saving people from hell for heaven, eternity. And he calls this people to be holy and to love him and to serve him and to live for his glory. And that God, our God, he calls you to be part of that mission in the world to impact eternity. So let's abandon all of our small and self-centered ambitions and give ourselves to the cause of Christ and his gospel. Amen, somebody. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's our mission. Go and make disciples. It is not optional. Making disciples is the purpose and the priority of every faithful church and every faithful Christian. Making disciples is the joyous privilege of every single Christian. Now, obviously, you need to be a disciple to make disciples. And that mission, it begins at home with your family, with your spouse and your children. That's our most important mission. But it doesn't end there. The goal is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, Romans 1.5, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
2 Corinthians 4.15. Now, making disciples has two parts, two big buckets, evangelism and discipleship. And we are taking a break from our series through the little letters, and we're going to focus on discipleship. We've had a couple of sermons, and we'll get to hear from Stephen again on evangelism, but today we want to focus on this second piece, this idea of discipleship. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make converts. He said, make disciples, people who will follow him, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. So we're going to focus on discipleship today, helping each other grow in following Jesus, in our walk with Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about this morning, discipleship relationships, as we talk about this. And the main application is to get involved in discipleship relationships, to get involved in in your brothers' and sisters' lives to help them grow in following Jesus. And we're going to answer four questions. What is it? What's the biblical basis for it? Why is it important? And how do we do it? So let's talk about the first question. What is a discipleship relationship? Well, first, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower. A disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. It's someone who who follows his life and teaching. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8, 24. That means obedience and self-sacrifice and self-denial for the good of others and the glory of God. It means living for Jesus' sake and the gospel. It means obeying Jesus, walking in his way. Jesus gets to set the agenda of your life. That's what it means. We live for him, not for ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Now, a discipleship relationship then is helping one another to follow Jesus. It's intentionally helping one another grow as a disciple of Jesus through encouragement and accountability. We do that by speaking the truth in love and by praying for the Spirit to make God's word effective in their life. Yes, we do this with our spouse and with our kids, but today I want to focus in on men meeting with other men or women meeting with other women to help them grow in their faith. It could be one-on-one, it could be in a group of three or four, but the purpose is building one another up in the faith. Second then, what's the biblical basis for discipleship relationships? It's based on our mission to make disciples and teach them to obey all that Christ commanded, yet the biblical basis for this is very broad, and I want to walk through some of that. It's rooted in all of the one another commands in the Bible. Did you know that there are over 30 distinct one another commands? That's a lot. God has a lot to say about how we treat one another. When you see one another, he's talking about Christians, Christians to Christians. Now, the most common command is love one another. That, that shows up 13 times in the New Testament. And love builds up, 1 Corinthians 8.1. And so we're commanded to pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding, Romans 14.19. Now, this mutual upbuilding where we help each other grow, building each other up, that's what discipleship relationships is all about. We're commanded to encourage one another and build one another up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. And that happens by speaking the truth in love so that we grow up in every way into him 
who is the head into Christ. Maturity in the Christian life is Christ-likeness. It's being like Christ, following Christ, living the truth. And Paul explains how we reach maturity when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4.15. Notice, every Christian is involved in this. Each part. Are you part of the body? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Then you have a part in this. Amen? You have a part to play so that the body builds itself up in love. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, Colossians 3.16. We're to exhort one another How often? Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice the goal of this daily exhortation is to help one another persevere in the faith, to not be hardened by sin, but to continue steadfastly in following Christ. We comfort one another, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. We are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, James 5, 16. And when someone is caught in a sin, we're to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6, 1. Restoring them means getting them back on track in living faithfully, following, trusting, and obeying Jesus. That's what it means to restore them. Now, When we look at the the one another commands in the New Testament, God calls us to teach, encourage, admonish, exhort, comfort, warn, restore, and stir one another up to love and good works. And that is just scratching the surface. We do this so that we will avoid sin and live faithfully and reach maturity and persevere in the faith. Now, I want you to notice in all of this that the nature of these commands requires close personal relationships where this kind of discipleship can take place. You've got to know someone well enough to know where they need to be corrected or comforted. You have to know a person well enough to know how to counsel them or to restore them to right living or to exhort them in ways that are fitting for them. These commands require a certain depth of relationship that goes beyond the mere surface level. We're not meant to live as Christians on an island. We're part of a body. We need one another. So, who is it that you are admonishing and exhorting? Who are you comforting or restoring? Who is stirring you up? Who is warning you? Do you see the the depth of relationship required for this? These are things that we are supposed to be doing Christian to Christian. Yes, this happens in marriage. At least it ought to. Husband and wife should be helping each other to grow in holiness. Yes, this happens with your kids. It's a parent's job to disciple their children. And yes, this should happen sibling to sibling in a family. God has put these Brothers, sisters, in your life, your brothers and sisters, your siblings, so that you can help encourage each other in the faith. It should be happening in all those places, but we still need others. Men need men in their lives, helping them grow. Women need other women in their lives, helping them grow. This is by God's design. 
We're to build one another up so that together we reach maturity in Christ. And we're commanded in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That phrase, let us consider, it means let's give careful thought to this. Let's be intentional about this, about stirring each other up. And stirring up, that, that word, that phrase, it means to rouse to action, to provoke in a good way, to prod people, to push each other to love and good works. And then it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this, these verses are typically applied to attending church regularly, and I totally agree with that application, but that doesn't exhaust the application of these two verses. It's not the only application. This includes meeting together for this mutual encouragement to help live out your faith. So who are you meeting with regularly, intentionally, to stir them up to love and good works? And who is doing this for you? Who are you intentionally investing in and who is investing in you? Now, third question is, why are these discipleship relationships so important? Well, having looked at these scriptures, hopefully the importance will be obvious. We cannot reach maturity in Christ by ourselves. Somebody say amen. Amen. It isn't going to happen. God didn't design it to happen that way. It's not just you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus and all your brothers and sisters and them and Jesus too. (laughs) The scriptures are clear. We need the body of Christ to reach maturity in Christ. We have to have these relationships if we are going to persevere in faith and faithfulness. That's why we cannot neglect to meet with each other. Now, I think that we, we know that we need these kinds of relationships. And I think that we long for them as men and women. We feel our need for encouragement in the faith. Don't you feel that? Don't you want somebody to come alongside you and encourage you in your walk with the Lord? Don't you want that? I do. I think we feel our need for this. We need help growing in our faith. Lone Ranger Christianity doesn't work. Now, despite the importance of discipleship relationships, despite the fact that we feel our need for this, only one in seven Christian men has any kind of ongoing intentional discipleship happening in their lives. That is abysmal. Men, you need to be in a discipleship relationship. We all do. Men, women, young, old, we need this in our lives. Where would Dietrich Bonhoeffer be without Eberhard Betke? That's his closest Christian friend and confidant. He shared all of his struggles with him, totally, fully, and he looked to him for his own discipleship. Where would John Newton be without Thomas Howis and William Cowper? Or John Calvin without William Farrell? Farrell was his close confidant who encouraged him? What about Irenaeus without Polycarp or Luther without Melanchthon or peanut butter without jelly? You gotta have these. They go together. Of course, Paul had Barnabas and Timothy and so many others. What about Dr. Charles Peterson and Dr. Wagner and Matt 
Webb and Brady Rupert and Brian Cook. You don't know any of these men, but I do. I do. They were instrumental in my early Christian life. And since then, Jeremy and Rob and Mitch and Jason and Drew and Dave and so many others. I need these men in my life discipling me. I wouldn't be who I am in the faith without their input in my life. So who has helped you to become the disciple that you are today? Who has walked with you and encouraged your faith over the years? And are you thankful for them? Aren't you thankful for those people in your life? I am. Our need for these kinds of relationships, these discipleship relationships, it never ends. You don't reach a point in your Christian walk where you're like, okay, I'm good now. I did the whole discipleship thing and now I can do it on my own. That's not a thing. We need these relationships in our lives. And let me ask you this question. Don't you want to be that person for somebody else? Don't you want to be the person that says, man, I'm so thankful for them in my life. I wouldn't be the kind of Christian that I am if it wasn't for them. Don't you want to be a part of that? So how do you do a discipleship relationship? How do we have these relationships? I think it's important to say up front that it all is motivated by love. Love for God and love for others. You've got to genuinely love other people for this to work. Moreover, you've got to genuinely love God. If, think of it this way. If Christ is truly your, your highest good, your greatest treasure, your all-satisfying joy, then how can you not want to help other people know Him, live for Him, serve Him, follow Him? Are you with me? And these are things that we say we believe, but is it true? And if it's true, then how can you not want to engage in this? Come and follow Jesus. It's good. It's your greatest joy, your greatest satisfaction. How do you not want to help people do that? So love for God and love for other people. Now, disciple-making, according to Jesus, is done by teaching people to obey everything that he commanded. So, listen, we help them to know the word, but we also help them to live the word, to put it into practice in their lives. Now, of course, you can't teach what you don't know, amen? And you can't take someone somewhere where you aren't going yourself, amen? We need an active faith if we're going to be discipling other people. We've got to know and love God if we're going to help other people to know and love God. Now, what are the keys for success? Everything that goes into making a solid relationship, because relationship is how we, we get a buy-in and influence in a person's life. So that means things like trust, building trust, being honest and open, humility, active listening, care, compassion, commitment, all of these things. Now, hopefully, you're, you're, many of you are thinking, hey, great, I see the need for this. I want you to show me how to do it practically. I, we had a handout put on the chairs this morning. Hopefully, you, you saw that and you have one. I want to walk through it. I want you to think of this little half sheet of paper as like training wheels. You know, when you learn how to ride a bike, eventually, you ditch the training wheels. Amen? Okay, so this is the training wheels. 
So when you disciple someone, these are the things that you do. First, you check up. You spend time talking with them, catching up with them. Remember, discipleship is built on relationship. Look at how much time Jesus spends with his disciples, doing life with them. Most change takes place in the context of relationships. So you need to meet and talk regularly or talk regularly enough to stay connected with them. And you're asking each other, how's your walk with the Lord going? Or how can I be praying with you? You can use these four spheres of discipleship. When we think about discipleship here at Gospel Fellowship Church, we think of these four spheres, God, family, church, world, right? These are areas we want to help each other grow. So you're asking them this question, how's your relationship with God? That's the center sphere. How's your personal devotional life? How's your thought life? How's your heart life? Are you reading your Bible and praying regularly? No Christian grows without these disciplines. The point is, is that you're, you're kicking the tires a little bit to see how's your walk with the Lord going. You ask then, how's your relationship and your ministry to your family? Here we're thinking marriage and, and parenting. But also, uh, think here, siblings, young people. Again, I want to say, God puts your brothers and sisters in your life so that you can help encourage them in the faith. This is all, I want you to be thinking, this isn't like an adults only thing. This is an all Christian thing. Young adults, youth, this is you too. So be thinking. I could be asking my siblings these kinds of questions. How is family worship going? So you're in that sphere. Then you talk about their relationship and their ministry to the church and the world. That includes things like their hospitality ministry, their workplace ministry, their Christian service, their ministry to their neighbors, etc. You get the idea. Now, when an area of growth is identified, let's say I'm meeting with Jim Bob. When I ask him, how's your walk with the Lord going? He tells me, you know what? My devotional life is really spotty. I'm not really reading God's word. And I'm super anxious about this big decision that I have to make coming up. You identify this area of growth through your conversation, and then you begin to build up. This is step two. You encourage each other with the word based on the needs You point people to Christ and his word, to his truth, to his promises, to his character. That's what they need. Life change comes through the word of God, understood and applied by the spirit of God. Now, sometimes that's going to mean speaking some hard words. And I don't mean being a jerk. I mean saying things that you know are going to be hard for them to hear. But you know that they need to hear it. We, we all need friends in our life who are willing to talk straight with us when we are off track. That's a true friend. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you have a friend and they never wound you because they're, they're correcting or calling out things in your life, maybe they're not as close a friend as you think. So we have to share hard truths. And when we share the truth, our goal is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. We, we, on the one hand, want to comfort the weak and encourage the faint-hearted. On the other hand, we have to be ready to help each other out of apathy or rebellion against the Lord. So we speak the truth. That said, we still have to be loving and gracious and gentle. We saw Ephesians 4.15, it says, speak the truth in love. Galatians 6.1, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. We use the Bible to build people up, 
not beat them up. It's truth and grace. It's so crucial. Keep in mind, when you're doing discipleship with someone, it is scary. It's a big hurdle to to get to the place in a relationship where you're willing to open up and share something personal with somebody else. And when they do, the first thing you're going to do is say thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Thank you for being honest with me. That's the first encouragement you're going to give them because that's hard and scary. Yes, we're going to bring the truth, but it's with grace and gentleness and respect. Do you you understand? So there's two mistakes then to avoid. The the first mistake is a lack of truth. It's like empathy for somebody, but you never get to the truth of God's word. The other mistake is the opposite. You bring the truth of God's word, you bring biblical encouragement, but there's no grace, there's no gentleness. We're going to avoid both of those mistakes. So let's say we've encouraged Jim Bob from Psalm 19 with the blessings of God's word, and we're encouraging him, like, look at all the blessings that come from reading God's word. And now we're encouraging him along these lines, and we're encouraging him, we're saying, look, God promises to give wisdom to those who ask. So with this decision that you have to make, God is going to supply the wisdom that you need. So we've encouraged from the scriptures, and then we pray for them. We pray for them right then and there. And we commit to pray for them regularly. Remember, God makes his word effective through the work of his Holy Spirit. Only God can bring the the heart change and the transformation that we want to see in their lives or our own. Amen? So we have to pray. Quick story, if I can do it quickly. I remember meeting with a a friend. He's a friend now. At the time, we, we didn't know each other very well. He wasn't a Christian at the time. And we would meet every week. And we, would, we were studying the Bible together, and every week we would get together, and he, this, this man would pepper me with every difficult question that a non-Christian could give a Christian, and I would do the very best that I could to point him to the truth and to answer the question, and every week I felt totally weak, totally helpless, and I got in my car and, and to drive home, and I said, well, that was worthless, that didn't do anything. So then I would just cry out to God my entire drive home, God, Look, if, if you're going to get hold of him, it's going to have to be you because I'm messing it up. <laughs> you know, like I'm just getting in the way, it seems like, right? Well, eventually this man came to Christ and we, we continued this relationship and he was discipled and he grew in his faith. Was that me? No, that was God. Every step of the way. Look, we have to be faithful in sharing the truth. That's it. That's our bit. We be faithful to share the truth and we pray and we pray and we pray because... God has to do it. Amen? So we, we encourage, and then the next piece of this is to stir up. So we, we check up, we build up, we encourage, but then we stir up. Now, that means helping them to identify the next step that they need to take in following Jesus. That's all this is. And you, maybe you already began to do that from the, the encouragement time, but if you haven't, now is the time where you want to make that next step as clear as possible. What is it? And it's really important to remember that sometimes the next step is doing something. So in our illustration for Jim, that means having personal devotions three times a week maybe or something like that, a goal. But it could be starting to pray for your spouse every day or with your spouse every day. It could be having family worship a couple times a week, whatever it is. But I want to point out something here. Very often, the next step is not to do something, but to believe something. It's to believe a truth of the scriptures because they're caught up in a lie and they're not believing the truth or 
they're, they're, they're in need of hope, they're in need of encouragement, and so they need to believe a promise. Does that make sense? Oftentimes, when we think about application, we think only of doing. I've got to do something. But we should just as often be thinking of believing something. Are you with me? Okay. Identify those next steps. Okay, then the last piece of this, you, you check up, you build up, you stir up, then you follow up. You verbally commit to following up on these growth areas when, the, when you talk with them next time. That provides accountability. But you actually have to follow up with them. You actually have to ask them about it. You have to talk to them about it. And they need to know, okay, yep, he's definitely going to ask me about it. This is accountability. The last thing you do is schedule the next time that you're going to meet or talk. You got to get it on the calendar and make it a priority. At the end of the day, raise your hand if you want to be involved in discipleship. Okay, good. I want you to know right now, it's going to take you time. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take effort. Okay? And you need to have the farmer's mentality. The farmer doesn't plant his crops on Monday and then harvest on Tuesday morning. That's not how that works. He plants, he waters, he weeds, and he waits, trusting that there's going to be fruit. We do the exact same thing when it comes to discipleship. We're going to work at this, but it's going to take time. We need to be patient with those who we're discipling. They're not going to hear what we say on Monday and suddenly be this completely different person on Tuesday morning. But trust in the slow work of God. God will bring the growth. Trust Him for that. So four basic parts. Check up, build up, stir up, follow up. Now, let me address the youth again for just a moment. This is something that every one of you can and should be doing. You college age students, you high school students, you junior high students, you should be doing this in the lives of those around you. Now, the younger you are, you should be doing this with your siblings at home, in your house, right? God put them in your life, your brothers and sisters, so that you can encourage them in the faith. But again, this is not complicated stuff. All of the things that we're talking about, that we're describing, you can do. You can check in. You can build up and encourage. You can stir people up in the faith, and you can follow up with your friends later. The question would be, for you young people, how do you make your friendships more intentional, more Christ-centered? Amen? Okay. Now, ideally, this happens. Uh, you, you meet with people. Now, speaking of everyone... This would happen in in a meeting, right? But I understand that life is hard and life is busy and you might not be able to get away and to meet people one-on-one for an hour or something like that. I want to encourage you that there's a lot of different ways that this can happen, different ways to work this into your life. It can happen as a part of the fellowship meal. It it can happen when you meet as moms for a play date or while, while your kids play or while you're on a walk or you can do it over the phone or while you're playing golf with a buddy. You can have people over for dinner. You can show them how family worship works. There's a lot of different ways to do this, but it needs regular, intentional relationship. This is more about a way of life than a program. This is how, this is how we should just be as Christians all the time. This is how we should be living, learning to be intentional with the time that we have. All right, a couple objections. Uh, Number one, I don't have time for this. First, I would say, which one of God's commands can you ignore because you don't have time? I would also say that you cannot afford not to be in a discipleship relationship. Again, remember why we need this. You will not reach maturity. You will not persevere in the faith. You will not grow without this. You need this. We always make time for what's most important to us anyway. 
Objection number two, I'm too busy with the kids to do something like this. Okay, men, what this means for us is we need to help our wives to have this kind of intentional time with other women. We need to watch the kids. We need to help them around the house. We need to make this possible for them. Objection three, this is going to take time away from my family. Yep. It will take some time away from your family. That's correct. And your first and most important ministry is to your family. But I would say this. I would say that being in a discipleship relationship will make you a better wife and mother. It will make you a better husband and father. It's been my experience that the majority of things that people ask for prayer and encouragement in is their walk with God, their marriage, their family, their close relationships. We need encouragement and accountability to grow in these areas. So I would say, men, how do you expect to, to lead your wife and your children if you're not growing in your faith? Say, women, how are you going to expect to nourish the faith of your children if you yourself are not growing in your faith? And we need these relationships in order to do that. So who are you going to invest in and who's going to invest in you? I want you to, to pray and to choose somebody and to get started. Who do you want to see growing in their faith? Start with them. Or who is a friend that you already have? Start there. What does this look like? What's the first step of this look like? I'm going to tell you, it's really very simple. Go talk to somebody. <laughs> you just go talk to them because you want to build a relationship with them. That's where this is rooted. It's rooted in relationship. So if you're like a long ways from this, just go talk to somebody, but make it intentional. Now, I want to have an, a special uh, appeal here for both men and women. Men, God means to use you in the lives of younger men in the church. Women, God means to use you in the lives of younger women in the church. And I'm not talking about your sons and daughters only. Discipleship begins at home, but it doesn't end at home. Are you with me? Okay. Again, young adults, I want to encourage you to do this. Also, older couples encouraging younger couples, newly marrieds. I want to see these kinds of relationships happening all over the place. And young adults, let me say, you also can reach out and to talk. Amen? It goes both directions. Yes? Okay. I'll conclude with this. I think the straightforward task of making disciples is demanding and it's difficult, not because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to persevere in it. Because it takes time and patience and sacrifice and effort and prayer. And so I want to, to close by helping us to keep sight of the reward. This is not just a duty for us. It's a delight. Twice now, as we've gone through the, the little letters of John, we've seen John say, I rejoiced exceedingly to see that you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the truth. It's a joy to be a part of this. It's a joy when you see someone take steps of faith and walk with Jesus. It's a joy to be a part of that. It's why I began this sermon by saying making disciples is the joyous privilege of every Christian. It's a joy for us to be a part of this work. We do this for others, 
And we need this from others. Amen? So let's give ourselves to making disciples. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for the way that you have designed your body to build itself up in love. And we just ask and pray, God, that you would help us to take the next step in making disciples of those around us. Help us to encourage one another in faith. Lord, would you build these relationships between people in the church that we might help each other to follow Jesus. Help us to speak the truth in love, with gentleness, with grace. Lord, we ask and pray that you would help us to stir one another up and to do so all the more as we see the day drawing near. God, do this work so that we could grow in maturity, so that your kingdom, your church would grow, and that you would be glorified. We ask this and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.